Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, welcome to the first episode of Ones and Twos. That's Foreign Policy's new economics podcast. Every week we'll be talking about two numbers from around the world that hopefully also explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi. I'm deputy editor of Foreign Policy. I'm sitting in Berlin, Germany, and I'm talking with Adam Tooze, namesake of the podcast. You'll have noticed he's sitting in New York. He's FP's economics columnist. Adam, welcome. Hi, Cameron. Good to be here. For those that may not be familiar with your background, Adam, do you want to give them a quick introduction? Yeah, so my day job is that I'm a professor of history at Columbia. And what I spend my time doing is, I guess, trying to make sense of the state of the world and the world's economy uh, against the backdrop of history and economics and economic data. And a lot of that comes together in my book that's just out, Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. And it's going to be great fun thinking through events, data, the history with you every week on our new podcast. Thanks, Adam. I'm glad you mentioned your book because that's going to be our big picture data point later on in the uh, episode. But first, we're going to do something more from the news, and that's the number 28.5 trillion, as in $28.5 trillion. So that's been in the news recently because it's the size of America's debt ceiling. That's basically the total amount of money the U.S. government is allowed to borrow. And it looks like we're about to run into that ceiling. Treasury Department is now warning that the U.S. could hit the debt limit as soon as next Our month. Our debt is pushed up against the limit of about $28.4 trillion. So only Congress can raise the debt ceiling. And that means Democrats and Republicans need to work together on that. There's just one problem. Republicans are saying they're not going to cooperate at all. And that has gotten people in Washington worried, including Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. She's recently warned of catastrophic economic consequences on the horizon. This all might sound familiar. It probably does. You might remember these standoffs going back to the 1990s. If not the 1990s, you probably remember 2011. That's when President Barack Obama was facing off with House Speaker John Boehner over the debt ceiling. The only way they'll vote to prevent America's first ever default is if the rest of us agree to their deep spending cuts only approach. The sad truth is that the president wanted a blank check six months ago, and he wants a blank check today. This is just not going to happen. And then in 2013, the standoff over the debt ceiling actually even led to a government shutdown. And here we are today with $28.5 trillion in debt. That sounds like a lot, at least to me. So what did all that borrowing even pay for, Adam? So it isn't a question that's as easy to answer as you might think. Um, it, it used to be. So through the 19th century, through World War I, Congress 
used to design and designate every new debt it gave permission for the federal government to issue and designate a particular purpose for it. So this was debt for building railways, for instance. And that stopped during World War I. So instead, since then, what the Congress does is to essentially authorise an overall cap on what the federal government can borrow, and then they let government get on with it. If you look back over the last 20 years or so, what we can say is that debts have been run up for three basic reasons. They're run up to pay for tax cuts. They're run up to pay for crisis fighting. And they're run up to pay for wars. And those are the three things which have really driven the accumulation of debt in the United States since the late 1990s. Okay, let me zoom out here a little bit because this just seems like a pretty crazy system. You're telling me that the government agrees to spend on a bunch of stuff that it does not have the money to pay for on hand. And then it has a separate decision that could go either way about whether to pay for the stuff it agreed to buy. I mean, I can't imagine this is how any other government in the world handles its business. But you tell me, Adam, where did this idea of a debt ceiling even come from? So, in fact, you know, there's no doubt that the US budgetary process is broken like many other aspects of American politics, right? So let's put that out there. And it's to do with the complexity of the American budget, the size. It's to do with the division of powers, right? It's the, the division of powers between the legislative branch and the executive branch. The UK government proposes a budget to parliament. It has an inbuilt parliamentary congressional majority. And so there isn't a whole lot of haggling that goes on about that. But broadly speaking, this is far from a crazy way to do things. In fact, this is exactly how economists would recommend that you do this. You decide that you want to spend on investments, on wars, on social expenditure, and then you separate from that the question of how you finance that. And there are three broad ways of doing it, through taxes, which can be appropriate or not, depending on where the economy is at, through debt, which there may be more or less demand for, depending on how much saving there is and how much people want to put in the piggy bank, or in extremists by printing cash, which is what states can do because they issue money. Where this came from, this debt ceiling is kind of interesting because it's double-edged. It limits, on the one hand, how much debt the federal government can issue. But the whole point of doing it in 1917 was, in fact, to say, and up to this point, you can borrow as much as you like and use, you can use it for whatever you like. So Congress is going to step away from regulating the specific purpose of borrowing and say to the Wilson administration in the middle of World War I, if you're doing some complex deal with our allies in the war, if you are doing some complex you know, war mobilization thing, you don't want to have to come to Congress and ask permission for every $100 million you spend. Here's the limit. This is how far you can go. If you need any more than that, come back and ask us. And that's essentially how the debt ceiling is intended to work. It was brought back into effect with, you know, with real drama in World War II on an even larger scale. And what's happened since then is that people have begun to play political football with it. So rather than it being the licensing, enabling, general purpose arrangement that it was originally intended to be, it's now become one of the main levers through which Congress checks the executive branch. And I think it's pretty clear right now that's what's going on in the United States at this current moment. The Biden administration has an ambitious legislative agenda. It wants to spend trillions on investment. And the Republicans are pushing back on that. Okay, Adam. So what happens if the debt ceiling does not get raised? I mean, we talked about Janet Yellen warning about a catastrophe. So 
where does the catastrophe come in exactly? I mean, the last time we had a debt ceiling standoff back in 2011, uh, America's credit rating did get lowered a little bit, but I didn't notice the effects. I, I don't know. So is this really a catastrophe? What, what am I missing? The nightmare scenario is America defaults on some of its outstanding debt. And why that matters is there's a huge pile of it, like we say, about $21 trillion circulating. And if any bit of that defaults, the whole lot becomes unstable. And that really would shake the global financial system to its foundations. And we know that in 2011, when this problem first arose acutely, there were contingency plans made in between the Treasury and the Fed to buy out the slices of debt that were coming due to ensure that no one actually got it defaulted on, or rather if anyone did, it would be the Fed. You then have entitlements that you've got to pay, social security obligations, you've got the salaries of public servants, who actually in 2013 suffered furlough and were paid for only a fraction of the October of 2013. So that's a whole group of people who were hit. And ultimately you have bondholders who have coupons that entitle them to interest on debt or indeed repayment of the principal. And if that obligation is not met, then you're technically in default. The worst case scenario is that people stop believing in the full faith and credit of the United States government. And that has to be avoided at absolutely all cost. Okay, uh, that actually does all sound pretty bad. Now I don't know why the Republicans would even even threaten this kind of thing. I mean, do they have something to gain out of breaching the debt ceiling or is this just a kind of bluff? If you go back to 2011, 2013, the last time we played this game, I mean, the Republicans at the time were a pretty head up bunch, right? So this is the Tea Party period. And then this is the period in which Steve Bannon comes to the fore. And Bannon was interviewed at the time as saying that he was in the business of trying to smash the administrative state in the United States. So at that level, it really was a kind of deliberate act of sabotage. In fact, Jerome Powell, who's now, of course, the Fed chair, acquired the affections of the Democrats because he did a lot of the work in 2011 in trying to explain. He literally ran seminars with Republican congressmen explaining to them how bad it really would be if the United States faltered on this debt. I think right now it's simply a piece of brinksmanship in relation to the Biden's agenda, which is expansive, as we know, and the Democrats are using whatever procedural means they can to force through, or at least thinking about forcing through this giant infrastructure, uh, social welfare program, the $3.5 trillion package, and the Republicans are pushing back with the tools at their disposal. Just straight up, what do you think? I mean, is this really going to happen? Are we going to blow by the debt ceiling and have a real default? I don't, I don't think it's likely because it is truly catastrophic. But with Congress in the kind of mood that it's been in recently, one shouldn't rule anything out. Okay, so to end, I wanted to bring up the question of what it would take to even get rid of the debt ceiling entirely. I mean, I saw some analysts saying this whole system doesn't make sense. Let's just get rid of it. But do you have any idea what normal Americans think about the debt ceiling? I mean, if I had to guess, I don't know. But I would think most Americans think debt is bad. And so a debt ceiling is good. Does history tell us how to persuade them otherwise? If you look at the sampling, if you look at the public opinion polling, Pew has done a series of surveys on this. And, and frankly, attitudes in the US vary over time. There have been moments of extreme agitation about deficits and debt. Um, the last wave of that peaked in the early 2010s, and slightly more than half of Americans thought that debt was a really big issue. By last year, that had fallen to slightly less than half. So it's an issue that concerns 
half, if you say, of the of the public interested in political issues in general. What Pew went on to discover was that though substantial groups worry about it, they also differ radically on what they would do to change it. So that's a big part of, as it were, the problem here. You can agree that this is an issue without agreeing on, on what to do about it. There are countries uh, like Japan, which live with vastly higher levels of debt than the United States does. So Japan's has a public debt level of over 230% of GDP, which isn't Italy, that's Greece. I mean, that's really astronomical compared to it's more than double where the United States currently stands. They live with it because it's easy to live with this kind of debt if you can find people to hold it. And as we were saying, the the crucial thing to understand about debt is it's two-sided. And we're on, in a sense, both sides of the equation. One of the most famous sayings in sort of Keynesian economics is we owe it to ourselves this isn't so I think we owe to Martians or foreigners on the whole, though some American debt is owed to foreign bondholders. The vast majority of it continues to be held by Americans and it's claims by one group against the rest of the United States as taxpayers. And I think putting that message across, that this is a two-sided transaction, that there are very good reasons why we might want to run up debt, that we might want to transfer obligations to future generations, And that for every debtor, there is also a creditor, and that creditor is as much as often as not us. That would be, as it were, the way to socialise this understanding of debt as a neutral instrument, not something to panic about, but just simply to assess rationally, one way or the other, as a means, amongst others, of financing essential public expenditure. We'll be right back. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc., and uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain. And, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
All right, so we're moving on to the uh, what we're calling the big picture data point. This segment we recorded a little while ago before I got this new fancy mic. That's why it's going to sound a little different, but the data point we picked is from Adam's new book. The book is called Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. And when I was looking through it, there was a stat in there that jumped out at me. It was $3.3 billion. That's the number of workers who were furloughed around the world during the pandemic. That's basically the, all the workers who were prevented from going to work. That's $3.3 billion. I was stunned by that. And I guess I wanted to start by asking for some context. Adam, can you tell us how many workers there are in the world to begin with? Yeah, it's a staggering number. I think it might have been one of the numbers that when I read it, I thought, oh my God, <laughs> this is like nothing we have ever seen before. In fact, it's literally nothing we, our species, our humanity has ever seen before. A, a deliberate restriction in the work of, well, we think the global workforce is maybe 3.5 billion people. And of those, it's not quite right to say that everyone was furloughed but what 3.3 billion people were, were under one or other type of furlough slash socially distanced work regulation. In other words, this was not business as usual. But yeah, if you do the math on that, it's, you know, pushing 90% of the global workforce. This is a number 90. from the from the ILO, the International Labour Organization. Everyone, I mean, everyone. This is the thing about COVID, like, in, especially in March, April, it affects practically everyone on the planet. So this number is the number of people affected by regulations that says stop doing things how you normally do them, do them this way. As we as we know, I mean, you and I, Cameron, went on working throughout this entire thing. We just didn't go into the office anymore. So we'd be part of this number. What this is telling you is that the ordinary business activity of the vast majority of people in the employed workforce, so these are people who are working for themselves in farms or whatever, was disrupted, was, was, was changed in some quite fundamental way. So this all makes the pandemic seem like a kind of natural experiment, as if we were all just together trying to explore the boundaries of what policy could even do in the economy. But if it was a natural experiment, I guess that raises the question of whether there was any new knowledge that emerged from all of this. I mean, did we learn anything new about how the economy works on a basic level? I mean, take the most basic level of all. Adam, did we learn that countries can afford not to work? Well, they can certainly afford to in terms of questions of paying for things. One of my uh, absolutely favorite quotes in all time in economics is anything that we can actually do, we can afford. This is from Keynes in 1942. Affording, in other words, finding the cash money to pay for things is not our problem. Can you permanently interrupt or for any protracted period of time interrupt the production of food, the education of children, the production of key raw materials and industrial uh, products, the ordinary functioning of the law courts, and indeed the entire infrastructure of urban life, cafes, restaurants, public services, and so on, to which the answer is evidently no, you can't, not for any protracted period of time, which is why we didn't do that. So after GDP, our best guess as to actual output, the fall in output in the spring of 2020 in April is about 20%, which again, 
is less, of course, than the drama of the fact that 3.3 billion people were under one or other type of workplace restriction. But again, in the history of the economy, so far as we're able to measure it or even estimate it, there has never been a collapse in output of the scale of 20% in a matter. It's literally a matter of weeks. That's just without precedent. Mm. We have learned that you can tide people over by literally you know, issuing checks and putting, say, the president's name on them. You can do that. Uh, you can, in fact, alleviate poverty by doing that. In, in the United States, the share of people counted amongst the poor fell over the course of the crisis quite remarkably. We've also learned more sophisticated lessons like the Europeans that you can do various types of short-time working arrangement where you don't actually lay people off and make them unemployed. You keep them in their jobs, pay their salaries with some of these checks that you've printed, um, and then enable them to go back to work normally when you can resume production. We've learned a whole nother bunch of lessons about how you stabilize financial markets when they freak out, the sorts of grandiose things the central banks had to do. So we've learned some positive things, some things about our capacities for crisis management, but also some of the limitations. That has me thinking about whether there are even more abstract lessons to be learned from the pandemic. Um, to me, in the before times, it always seemed to me that the economy was something that we had to adapt to. That's the way we talked about it. As workers, as individuals, we just had to accept that there was an efficient way the economy worked and we could adjust it on the margins. But ultimately, we just had to adapt to it. And now the pandemic came along and we all just told the economy to stop in its tracks and, and it did stop. And so maybe, I don't know, did we learn that we're actually more fundamentally in control of the economy than, than we thought? Is there this whole idea of efficiency? Is that kind of just a category mistake, maybe? I, I think it probably is a category mistake. I, I would sort of focus on three different respects. I mean, the first is simply that quite a lot of the contraction in the economy, to use a rather neutral term, was in fact driven from below, if you like. People just weighed up whether they wanted to go on shopping in malls or not, decided they didn't want to. People weighed up whether they thought it was worth taking the risk of going to work in a factory and decided they didn't want to. So then employers discovered they didn't have workforces. So then they decided maybe this was time to take a break. And then they discovered that they didn't have consumers either. So there wasn't much point in making things just to build up stocks. So the economy, all the evidence shows, was contracting well before governments issued any orders for people to lock down. The IMF estimates for the advanced economies, probably 60% of the contraction came from that choice to just opt out for a while because the risks seemed too high. Then I think there is, and this is where the reference to the political theory is really absolutely pertinent, it turns out there is a sort of overarching claim by the government, by the state, to protect citizens against threats. There is, as it were, in the terms of the great 17th century British political philosopher Thomas Hobbes, right, there is the promise of security that comes from the state. And that extends in the modern age to epidemic disease. And then there's a third element, which in the end was what was driving everything, which has something to do with a, a more concrete set of dependencies, which is that we simply couldn't afford to have the key parts of our infrastructure collapse on us. That was the thing that was absolutely crucial. It was really the hospitals, right? This was all that talk about flattening the curve. The thing about flattening the curve is, is the government isn't promising that people won't die. It's actually saying probably people are bound to die. But the crucial thing is that they don't die all at once in the hospital system. So we spread this out. And what that tells you 
is beyond, as it were, the big government promise of security and the individual choices people make. There is also a collective reliance on this infrastructure. So those are the three imperatives which definitely override just business as usual. People don't want to take part. The government promises security. And crucially, in the end, everything hinges on that infrastructure remaining intact. And that did, in the end, take priority over everything else. So, Adam, now that the era of lockdowns are coming to a close, do you see policymakers falling back on their old economic arguments? Or are they actually citing the past couple of years as a reason to be creative, to start a new era of policy experimentation? I think it's just too early to tell. I mean, we won't be able to judge, I think, how much policymakers have learned until they've had, as it were, at least a few more months, if not years, to forget. As we saw in the 2008 crisis, the big shift from expansionary policy to what became known as austerity, a policy of tight spending, high taxes and so on, didn't happen in 2008. And it didn't even happen in 2009. It didn't really begin until 2010. So if you take that as our standard, you wouldn't expect, as it were, it to become clear what policy has and has not learned until then. That'll be the real test. So that means, you know, in the interim, we still have time to push and to argue and to insist that lessons should be learned. And that's definitely something that I'm passionately involved in on an almost daily basis. Because the lesson should be obvious, right? And the first and the most important lesson is we need to focus on this pandemic issue again and again and again. I am involved in discussions with incredibly well-meaning people who are desperately worried about the future, who focus on, say, the climate problem. That's absolutely right, and we should be. But we have to understand that this pandemic we've just been through inflicted savage, I mean, literally unprecedented levels of economic damage. It was widely predicted by virologists and epidemiologists that this would happen. And this is by no means the worst thing that they think that could strike us. I mean, Bill Gates is not wrong when he says that an epidemic like this is the sort of thing that that could potentially kill a billion people at a stroke, right? If this had been avian flu, the one that everyone was worried about in the early 2000s, it could have killed hundreds of millions of people. We would not have been able to cope at all in that case. And we've just had a warning of it. And so that is the obvious and the central lesson to learn. And we need to focus on that first and foremost. If they do break out and we do fail to contain them, we've now also learned a whole bunch of things about the sort of economic and social policy that will work. But I mean, we cannot we cannot kid ourselves to go back to that number. We cannot be in a world in which we routinely interrupt the ordinary livelihoods of 3.3 billion people and furlough kids out of education for months on end. I mean, that is a a level of threat that is just apocalyptic in its implications. And we've had warning now. That is the world that we live in. Okay, that'll do it for the first episode of Ones and Twos. That's Foreign Policies Economics podcast, but you would know that by now. Thanks for listening. I'm Cameron Abadi. And I'm Adam Twos. Ones and Twos is written and produced by me, Cameron Abadi, and Adam Twos. Rob Sachs and Laura Rosbrow-Tellum edit our episodes. If you want to learn more about what we're talking about, check out the links from today's podcast at our website, foreignpolicy.com. You can also find a link to Adam's book, Shut Down. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make 
big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.